stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Kyle Miner, is the author of the short story collection In the Devil's Territory. He was named one of Random House's Best New Voices of 2006, was the winner of the 2012 Iowa Review Prize in Short Fiction, and his work has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, Best American Mystery Stories, Best American Non-Required Reading, and online at Esquire, The Atlantic, Salon, and Tin House. He's here today on Between the Covers to talk about his much-anticipated new collection, Praying Drunk from Saraband Books. The LA Review of Books describes Praying Drunk as follows. These are stories that layer upon one another to speak to the most fundamental questions, the unanswerable questions that we continue to ask that make us human, questions about death, God, love, good and evil, justice and injustice. Welcome to Between the Covers, Kyle Miner. Thank you. Well, it was, it's, I've been anticipating this, this conversation, Kyle, because this book has really stuck with me. And um, both the themes that you explore that the LA Review of, of Books uh, alludes to, but also the strange form, the way, hard way to, um, to name exactly what this is. And, and we discover that at the very beginning of the book where it says stories, comma, questions. And then you keep going and you see that there's a warning before we start where it says, uh, do not read this out of order. This is not just a collection. This is a book, a highly curated object, presumably. Can, can you talk about leading us into this, this unusual form? Well, the book is a, kind of a document of a lot of other failed books. You know, it's a bunch of, of fragments and things. And I didn't really know it was a book until uh, my friend Matt Bell was telling me about how he put together Cataclysm Baby, his novella. He said he had all these pieces and he spread them out on the floor and he began to see the ways that they were talking one to the other. And I thought, well, I have all this, I have 10 years worth of stuff here. Let's see what I have. And the first thing that I noticed, which, which was not a good thing to notice, is that so many of the stories were about the exact same things told different ways. And... And that made my heart sink, right? Because I thought, oh, man, everything I've been doing is just drafts of everything else. Except that they were so different one from another formally. Some were essays, some were memoirs, some were poems, some were short stories. Some were written in different genres. One was a robot story. And um, as I was laying them out, I was thinking about these traveling preachers that used to come to town to the Baptist church when I was a little kid. And they were horrible. They'd play records backwards, you know. It's like if you played the Beatles, Tomorrow no, Never Knows Backwards, it would say, he is the nasty one, Christ, you're infernal. And they'd tell scare stories about if you watch the movie Gremlins, these demons would claw out the skin of your arms at night, and that there were many children all over the world with scarred up arms. And I didn't want scarred up arms, you know. I wanted complete whole arms. And um, th th these often culminated in these uh, rapture movies that they'd show us. Uh, the sky would turn red, Christ would come on a horse, this time with a sword, and the graves would rip open and the corpses would fly up and become an army in the sky. And if you were alive and you weren't ready, you'd be left behind for seven years of terrible tribulation. And then at the end of that, if you did the right thing, you'd be chased through the mountains by the local sheriffs and UN helicopters. And then uh, they'd put you under the guillotine. And I remember this one movie ended this way. The, the girl's head was under the guillotine after she'd been caught by the sheriffs and the helicopters, and the blade began to fall. And then, it, and then a freeze frame happened just a second before the blade struck her neck, 
and she was screaming, but the scream went on through the freeze frame and into the black. And then, of course, the preacher got up and, and, and after a long silence, he said, uh, what would happen tonight if you walked out these front doors and you were hit by a garbage truck? You know, because the church was right on the, the street, uh, the front door of the church. And uh, that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was after that came the Great White Throne Judgment, and they'd build a stadium the size of the whole world or maybe even bigger because it had to accommodate everyone who had ever lived. And you'd all be in there, and then for a long time, as long as it took, they would show on, on the largest 16-millimeter uh, film projector ever made all of the, of the things that you ever did, good and bad, plus all of your thoughts, good and bad, which counted the same as your deeds. And everyone who had ever lived would see them. And if you got past that, which happened by the dividing of the sheep from the goats. Now, everything up until now has been very literal, but this is the first metaphor. You don't actually get turned into a sheep or a goat. Hmm. Uh, just sheep means good people that go to heaven and the goats go to hell like the cake song. So so um, I figured maybe I'd be one of the sheep and then I'd go to heaven. But when I got there, this is what you do. You sing the same awful songs that you sang all those years in church forever. And you get crowns as rewards for the thing that you did, but you have to give them back and throw them to the throne. And everything that I care about in the world, stories, you know, mostly, people too, it's attached to trouble. Everything that's interesting about life is you got skin in the game, you know. But up there you wouldn't. And I thought that'd get boring really fast. So I figured eventually I'd end up in like some study carol in some back quarters of heaven next to Joyce Carol Oates, you know, and we'd just be grinding it out forever, <laughs> uh, just churning out different versions of the same preoccupations that we had when we were alive because they're interesting. And, and I was thinking about that with all that paper on the floor, and then I realized, well, that's, that's what the book is. That's the form of it. And, and then I realized there was an organic reason for everything to belong together in the way that it did. Well, I mean, I think it really worked, the strangeness of the form made it stick with me more because I, it couldn't settle into a uh, an already preconceived category. And and one of the things, it's interesting to hear you talk about uh, how it's sort of a, a potential rebellion against the monotony and, and boredom of this idea of heaven. But also I was wondering, you know, we have in this book, you've included fictions and non-fictions, but without telling us overtly which are which. And you have stories that read more like essays. You have uh, stories that are almost entirely dialogue, uh, unexpectedly science fiction stories that are taking place in, in what seem like the rural, the rural uh, south of today at the same time. Uh, a whole bunch of really interesting experiments that, that get put together. And I wondered if part of the enterprise was also, and maybe this speaks to the boredom again, if it, part of it was a uh, uh, look at how we can not only break all the rules of literary fiction, but that we should be breaking all the rules of literary fiction. Is, does that ring true for you at all? Well, I don't think that there are rules. I think that there are inherent qualities to different um, formal elements of prose writing and, and poetry too. And, and there's a lot of overlap between the two. And I think that all of those rules that you get in a class are usually derived out of like one grouping, one set of things that works. So for the generation of teachers that I mostly came up with, that had to do with a kind of a, a taking out rather than a putting in mentality. It had to do with an idea of an interiority that didn't go real deep because action was privileged um, in a way that, that made it difficult to do a person's interior life a lot. It had to do with um, chronologically linear storytelling and it had to do with um, a kind of a clean narrative arc that had a, a lyrical ending in a single movement. But as I read literature, I mean, reading, if you want to be a writer, reading is the thing because reading will free you from whatever somebody else's prejudices are that they want to lay on you anyway. And as I read literature, I realized literature is almost everything. And if you want to achieve a different effect, then you have to chase a different formal thing. So, so I mean, you can see a lot of the working out of that in this book. You can also see the testing of the hypothesis in this book, right? Literature really can do a lot more than a lot of people want to say that it can, and I wanted to chase that kind of a freedom. 
So the first the first model that you explained, it, um, presumably, is the Raymond Carver Hemingway model. Yeah, and you're really putting yourself in more. I mean, maybe a, an outsider tradition isn't the right word, but a tradition outside of that uh, default position for for American post-war literature. No. I want to put myself in whatever tradition serves the thing that I'm chasing at the moment. I really dislike the divide between what people would call traditional and experimental literature. I find extraordinary experiments in writers that get derided as just purveyors of a staid domestic or something. Like um, Alice Monroe is a writer that I really admire. And she's and, extremely experimental. Uh, she's hugely experimental, and all the attacks on her seem to come from a kind of a experimental wing that doesn't really understand what she's doing because they haven't read her closely. But she went through a period of about four books where she tried just about everything that you can try structurally and formally and broke all kinds of new ground. In parallel with what other writers who were more recognized for doing similar kinds of things were doing at the same time, like Philip Roth, at the very same time was doing some of the very same things. The difference was... She was writing about uh, older women in rural Ontario, and he was writing about uh, – he was having a really sexy engagement with history, you know, and, and the prose was flashier. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean I think what we should value is what makes our heart beat hard, and usually that has to do with a certain either intellectual or emotional engagement that the thing provokes, and it has to do with really beautiful writing as well. And attention to character, human beings. You know, I, I really love that as as an approach. So, one of the, when we start uh, praying drunk, the first story, the the question of where we begin, sort of teaches us in a way how to read the book. Both introduces some of the themes, but uh, also introduces uh, the strange. Uh, mechanics and ethics of storytelling that depending on how much or how little backstory is given to a given character depending on what choices are being made around the frame and the point of view uh really has a huge influence on what empathy or lack of empathy we have for a character can can you talk about putting that story up front and and what it's doing for for you in the collection well when people give advice about beginnings they'll say Things that are useful, like start on the day that something different happened or begin with the trouble. But when human beings are reckoning with the trouble, there's not necessarily a single answer to that, or it may not be the thing that you would think. I went to a funeral where a family member had committed suicide, and in the back chatter all around the casket, what you heard mostly was the question of where the story began. Like, like where do we place the blame? What, what was the source of, of this suicide? And some people would say, well, you know... It's because uh, his children hadn't been talking to him for a while. No, no, it's because it's when his wife left him and, and the money thing. No, it's his parent. You remember all those years that he was in the bathtub having to sleep in there when he was a kid? Well, you can't really blame the parents so much because you know, you know how, how it was for them. I mean, they came from those hard scrabble circumstances. You keep pushing that thing backward through time, and soon it's, it's, it's into what if the Irish potato famine hadn't happened? Or what if the winds had blown differently in 1588 and the Spanish had won the Battle of the Spanish Armada and we'd all be speaking Spanish now? And you keep going and you keep going and now the very farthest you can push it is a question of cosmology, right? Where did things begin altogether that set into motion all this cause and effect? And for people in the part of the world that I came from, there's only really two possible choices for that. One is in the beginning there was a big bang and the universe began to explode outward. The other one was... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved across the face of the water. And God said, let there be light, you know, this this Genesis stuff. And um, I, think that, I think that realizing that, I realized something else about stories, which is at their heart, the really good ones almost always are essays in the sense of they're working through something on the terms of the singular, subjective, special logic that the speaker has to offer up, which is different from the way anyone else would tell the story. And that's the kind of thing that uh, writers have been about for a long time. I mean, William Faulkner used to talk about his distrust for facts. You could, you could stand a fact up and you could cast a shadow in, in any direction, right? You could, make, you could make a fact mean anything you want. Certainly every four years in the presidential elections we see evidence of that. Well, that's a pretty liberating thing for a fiction writer. 
because now everything is yours. The sum total of your experience and intelligence and and even the ways in which you're getting things wrong are part of the fabric of the story that you have to tell. And I think that's what I was trying to be about with that story. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to author Kyle Miner about his new collection, Praying Drunk from Saraband Books. That first story also raises the question of, of choice and chance within uh, a person's life and how chance runs counter to storytelling and, and how storytelling demands a frame. And it reminds me of, of Philip Roth saying, I can't write some of the things that really happened to me as, because no one would believe them. They don't make sense in a narrative fashion because they just happened. And of course, when you're writing a story, you have to work on, on um, making the, the reader enmesh with the believability of the world you're creating. It's this weird tension between, like you say, facts and story and truth and meaning. I think that every story needs both chance and agency because I think that inevitably stories, the, the, the setup for the story is you got somebody that's going along and they're driven by their want, their need, and their desire – and they could keep moving along inertially for, for, for you know, an indeterminate amount of time. But something outside of their control, uh, one, one person I know calls it fate and circumstance, comes along. And now that destabilizes that forward motion and anything could happen. And so I think uh, if you really want to tell a story that has any kind of heft to it, it has to have both. That's the first thing I want to say about that. The second thing is I think that that writers in the United States have become incredibly timid and conservative with regard to uh, the things that can happen in the world. Because if you take almost any human being that you've ever met and you sit down and you say, tell me your life story, it's about 90% more interesting than 90% of the fiction that I read now. And I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately, like like comedy podcasts. Like uh, I listen to Mark Maron's podcast where he mm-hmm. just interviews comedians and and uh, actors and things. Inevitably, the story that they have to tell about their lives for the hour and a half that he gets them to open up about it is infinitely more interesting than anything that they've ever acted in. And that's because that's just how life is. You know, the world is an infinitely interesting place and people find all kinds of ways to mess up their lives and people intersect with the most unlikely things all the time. I think fiction should take more risks and and, and wade out into those waters more often. That's interesting because back to this this idea of there not being rules. When when you talk about the the Carver Hemingway model, and of course you mentioned there's tons of experimentation within that model. Also, there's also this sort of bias I think in American fiction compared to European fiction that if you have something to say, write an essay. You're not trying to get across a point when you write a story, which is it feels like that's one of the exciting things I think about praying drunk and 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 perhaps a lot of the greatest fiction is that it really does have something to say. Well, I think the things that that those kinds of fiction uh, novels and stories and, and whatever have to say, they're usually not imposed from the top. You know, I mean that's true of essays too. If you go into a thing and you know what the whole thing is going to be and what it means, then you're really closing it off. I think that the things that are the most thematically interesting in general are things in which somebody is legitimately chasing a question through time. And the answer is probably going to be in part or in whole considerably more difficult, more complex, and different from from the place that you started. And uh, that's the thing that I learned really from writing essays um, that so there's that the, the other piece of it is that um, I think that some writers forget as I forgot when I first started that a short story is not like a a thing usually that operates outside of a consciousness it's it's the full it's the most important thing in the world to somebody that's why it's important enough to be told well if it's the most important thing in the world to somebody and they're thinking about it all the time, that's going to probably lead them to something. And, and, and I think that the story almost always can, can bear more than, uh, than that sort of 80s minimalist model would suggest it can. Yeah. Well, the book begins with – one of the epigrams the book begins with is from Rilke. If I lose my demons, I will lose my angels as well, which I think really captures the, the tone – 
of praying drunk. And, and I, I, I feel like there's a resonance uh, with some thematically with the way you write in some of Cormac McCarthy in the sense that it feels like the, the stories gravitate towards heightened moments, towards uh, moments of life and death, moments of unexpected courage and compassion or, or cruelty. And I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that. Um, I think of, for instance, the story, you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. And, and the sort of meditation it goes through around uh, good and evil in the Jewish Bible versus what's going on in the New Testament and how it seems to have a, a more um, allowance for the presence of darkness. I keep thinking about this story William Gay wrote called The Paper Hanger. It came from a story he actually heard about a paper hanger who was working on a job site in rural Tennessee at a rich lady's house. And there is this little yippy dog that was always nipping at everybody's heels. And then after, after a few days, the dog just disappeared, and the rest of the workday was lost because everybody was looking for it. And this paper hanger was participating in the search, and he had a big old uh, toolbox on wheels. You know, he just left it there and went with everybody to look. And then at the end of the day, they didn't find the dog. And then a few weeks later, uh, William Gay ran into the paper hanger somewhere, like at a bar or something, and he said, what do you think ever happened to that dog? And the paper hanger said, well, that dog just bit my ankle one more time, and I reached down and I snapped its neck with one hand, and I dropped it in my toolbox. And then I helped look for the dog, and at the end of the day, I wheeled my toolbox up into the van and I drove away. And then I buried it in a shallow grave. And what William Gay did, this is the smartest thing ever, is when he wrote the story, it wasn't a dog whose neck was snapped. It was a small child. And the principle there, which would be the most horrible principle ever in life, which is don't kill the dog, kill the baby, turns out to be the best thing in the world for fiction. Because when we hear the stories, we don't want to hear about the same thing that always happens. We want to hear about the extraordinary. That's a crucible in which... Uh, Meaning is shaped in emotion and feeling, and we can see with such clarity what that thing really was, and uh, that appeals to me. And the flip side of that cruelty is uh, those moments in, in this collection uh, where we find these amazing capacity for kindness and, and connection from someone who you would never think um, should even be thinking of that. Yeah, like I've been thinking about I've been working on this uh, TV pilot about which I probably shouldn't even say much because I'll get in trouble. But I have been thinking about these old-time guys like in rural Louisiana or listening to the radio. And uh, they hadn't been anywhere, you know. But on the radio you hear about places that sound so exotic like Slidell or Lake Charles, you know. Or, or even the big one, New Orleans, where it floods so much and then the caskets begin to come through the street on the canals of water. And then you go to those places, and they're just not much more than the place that you were, but in your imagination, they were so extraordinary. And life is full of moments where you get the chance to sit down with somebody who has something like that to say. And even though it's a quiet thing, it has a, a power that's sort of uh, similar to the kind of power that, that these other kind of stories have, because... We're dealing with the power of the interior life, the imagined life, the world of possibility, all that could be, you know, before experience takes that away. Hmm. Well, in your own biography, you were briefly a pastor and before you, you moved on to become a, a writer professionally. Can, can you talk about that, that life and the moving away from that life well, in relationship a, to praying drunk? It was a big mistake, you know. <laughs> Um, I was really young and I had been raised in an immersive fundamentalist environment for my childhood, which I had started to make some distance from in steps by moving to a softer denomination or by moving to a less fire and brimstone church. The real turning point for me was going to, to the university to study, to do that kind of work, because now I had to reckon with the way that the canon was formed in the history of Christianity and all the brutality and circular logic, studied philosophy. And it takes a while if you spend your whole life locked into one way of understanding the world 
to start to work that out. And I was working it out while I was doing that work. But I remember my day off was Fridays. And I worked, you know, 12 or 18 hours a day often when I was doing that. I didn't have a lot of time for reflection. But on Fridays, I go down to the theater down in Jupiter, Florida. So it's a 12-plex. And it was a really good year for American movies because all these filmmakers that would have been making independent films were given big budgets, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson and Gus Van Zandt and uh, Spike Jones And I saw so, so many great, great films. Three Kings and Being John Malkovich and American Beauty and Good Will Hunting. And sometimes I'd buy five tickets. I'd stay in there till midnight. You know, stay in there all day. Eat popcorn, watch his movies. And I felt so much more than I ever did in church. It seemed so much more true, the thing that was happening, even though it was a fictional thing. A sense of transcendence, like sometimes you feel at a great rock concert. Um, and I thought, well, this is really, I'd rather do this with my life. This seems more true. Mm. And so when I stepped away, that was sort of what I stepped away toward. The other thing that was helpful to me was I, I, I tried a little while to go into uh, religious uh, magazine writing, which I was good at, but I didn't like it. And I found myself homeless pretty quickly because uh, it's hard to make it as a freelancer. And I ended up sharing this 80-square-foot octagon-shaped house with two women. And uh, during the day, they were gone, and they didn't have much to do, but one of them had a shelf full of Kurt Vonnegut novels. And I had never read much literature before. I'd read, like, one Hemingway book and one Faulkner book in high school. But I read Vonnegut straight through from Player Piano to, to the, the last book. I think Timequake was the last one at that time. And that was kind of my gateway drug to literature, you know. And it just opened up everything. Um, and that's what I've been doing ever since. Well, I would argue or assert that becoming a pastor was was a great thing for your for your future writing. And, and the way that the metaphysical questions are sort of infused in all of these stories is, is one of, I think, its strengths. And, I mean, even the science fiction story that we have harkens back to Abraham and Isaac. And, At the end there, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and then I, I was wondering about the, the story that's almost purely dialogue, the glossolalia story where a woman who speaks in tongues, who's devoutly evangelical, is... Um, in a conversation with a, a man who's wanting to date her, who is no longer a believer, or maybe never was a believer, I'm not sure. But or maybe he's on his way out. Yeah, and yeah. I was curious if that was a conversation between your past and your future, uh, and trying to find some common ground. And because these characters are earnestly trying to be respectful, while obviously having to do a lot of work to to build a bridge. Yeah, and, and ultimately they can't build a bridge. You know, there's so much pain in choosing a, a way of being in the world that alienates you from your community of origin in such an extreme way. You can't even anticipate what it's going to be when you make a choice like that. I value so much people that I knew when I was a child or young adult who still are in relationship with me, even, you know, uh, even the ones who are still involved in that world. That's not the majority response. There's an idea in the community that I came from that the price of love is correction. And so the most loving thing that you could do to someone who walks away is to reject them and, and, and shut them out till they come back or to be silent about the thing that they're doing and not engage with it except on their terms. Um, I think I was thinking about those things a lot when I was writing those stories. And, and what does the, the title mean, Praying Drunk? Well, the title comes from an Andrew Hudgens poem, also called uh, Praying Drunk, which begins, Our Father who art in heaven, I am drunk, again, red wine. Um, it, takes, it takes the form of uh, the Lord's Prayer, but it's, it's offered by a person in a low place who is also uh, earnestly offering up the prayer. Now, in my book, that poem comes along when a aid worker in Haiti is mistaken for a minister and is asked to lay hands on a person's, an 80-year-old man's scrotal tumor uh, for the purposes of healing it. And he knows he can't heal it. But he does it because it's expected and it seems like the, the most caring thing he could do it in the moment. But then he realizes he can't remember 
any words to any prayer, and he begins to conflate it with that, with that poem, Praying Drunk. Wow. And he does his best. And uh, I think it's like that uh, almost all the time for almost everyone who, who cares about other people or even for people who are still believers in whatever, who are trying to get through. Everything's unclear as if through a haze. We're doing the best we can. And inevitably what's sacred and what is human failure is conflated uh, in a way that a phrase like praying drunk seems to encapsulate better than almost anything I've ever heard. Well, let's have our listeners hear a little bit of the prose. Okay. Uh, this is a section. This is actually an earlier section from that story I was just talking about from a story called Seven Stories About Sebastian of Kulefville, set in Haiti between the American uh, aid worker and, and his translator. They have an economic exchange, but they're kind of circling around a friendship. Once late at night, we were trying to sleep in the reclined seats of a borrowed jeep in the middle of the treeless forest on our way to cross the Dominican border. We both kept machetes under the seats, and I had a gun. Somewhere near enough to hear, but not near enough to see, a lot of people were singing and beating drums. I kept the keys in the ignition. Sometime before morning, Sebastian said, Tell me about your mother. She was a good woman, I said, but for 20 years she refused to talk to her sister. Her sister slept with her husband, Sebastian said. No, I said, it was a misunderstanding. Her sister forgot to pick me up from school one afternoon, and one time she left me alone in her house for a half hour while she went to the store to buy some groceries. There was an incident with somebody saying something to somebody else about what somebody else said to some other person. I'm not sure I understand it. After I was born, my mother ran away, Sebastian said. No one knows where. There was some kind of craziness in her family. Her father said many of them had been turned into zombies. He took me to see them near Fursi. They were chained to a plow, four of them, and pulling it. My father said, that's voodoo. And I said, no, it's not. That's mental illness. The farmer had a whip, but he wasn't driving them with it. He didn't need the whip. Their spirits were broken already. They were machines with broken brains. He reached under his seat for his water bottle and took a sip. Why are people so bad to each other, he said. There is this crazy woman. She always came into town with this mongrel dog. She had only one friend. He was a crazy person, too. A line of drool always hung from his mouth. He had gums instead of teeth. Sometimes he stole some food for her dog. I never saw her eat. She was always looking for food for the dog. Sometimes when I think of him now, it's this moment. He's staring out the window in the direction of the mountains of Massif de la Selle, thinking about his mother. Sometimes she slept on the steps of the mission school. When she did, we stepped over her. Someone might poke her with his foot to wake her. Someone probably kicked her sometime, but I never saw anyone do it. One morning, the dog was gone. She was walking the street looking for the dog. All day, she was looking. The next morning, she lay on the steps of the mission school. I stepped over her. We all stepped over her. Nobody poked or kicked her. We let her sleep. We felt sorry for her because of the dog. She was still lying there at the end of the school day when they opened the doors and let us free. She didn't move the whole day, and then she didn't move the whole night. One of the teachers came along and covered her body with a black sheet. Nobody wanted to take her body. Nobody wanted her to live forever with their own dead. Nobody wanted her bones with their bones. Nobody claimed her body till the next morning. It was the crazy man who fed her dog. He lifted her body, sheet and all. He was talking to her. He had her under the armpits, and he started spinning with her. He was dancing with her. They were turning and turning. He was making a noise like an animal soon to the slaughter. People were yelling, put her down, put her down. The boys picked up rocks and threw rocks at him. He had to flee. He tried to carry her away with him, but she was too heavy. The rocks were still coming. His face was bloody from them and his shirt was torn. Finally, he dropped her in the grass by the side of the road. She lay there for three days and then a Dutch man paid to have her buried in another village. He sent two men to collect her body. For a while, I didn't think about her much. But after I saw her relatives chained to the plow, I thought... Could that crazy woman have been my mother? We're talking today to Kyle Miner, the author of Praying Drunk. Haiti plays a a large role in this collection. Can you can you talk about what relationship you have with Haiti and 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 what relationship it seems to serve as a counterbalance to the stories that take place in the U.S.? Well, I spent parts of five summers down there, and for a while I was going down whenever I had a break. You know, a week off or something. And I kept going back to the same place, which was a village in the mountains in the West Province, agricultural village. Uh, 
Um, I, I think that going down there sort of brought the things that I had been thinking about in fiction into a, a global context because it was all the same things but magnified by a history of colonial interventions. And, and in a place where people were really doing pretty well with, with not many resources, um, and yet all the businesses in the streets, uh, in a way that's interesting and terrible. And when I went, I would just spend most of my time walking the mountains, talking with people, eating in people's houses. Sometimes someone would ask me to kill a rabbit for dinner. I'd have to learn how to do that. Um, I began to see the history of Haiti in some ways as a as the other side of the history of the United States because it's the only slave rebellion that ever took and then all the colonial powers punished everyone there forever uh, until now even with interventions and demands for tribute and and uh, empowering terrible people to be in charge and then blaming the Haitians when things went wrong and wasn't there even a a Christian interpretation of that too, that they had won the slave rebellion by making a pact with the devil? Well, you know, there's about as many of those as is useful to whoever has power, like everything else. I mean, I come from the Southern Baptists who became the Southern Baptists because they split from the Northern Baptists because of their support of slavery. The Northern Baptists were abolitionists and they used uh, things that were already in, in their scriptures to support it, like the story of uh, Philemon, uh, whose slave Onesimus ran away, and the Apostle Paul told him to go back to his master, right? Right. Or they would interpret the story of uh, of Noah's son Ham, who saw his nakedness after the flood, as being the origin story of African people. Well, it's terrible. And those uses have always been made of religion and the service of power. And the fault lies partly with power and partly with religion because those things are there in, in the stories. Um, so it's complicated and it's difficult because, of course, now if I'm writing about Haiti, I'm writing in part about the people that I came from and I'm writing in part about stories that belong to another people. And uh, that's, a, that's a difficult negotiation to make. But I think it's an important negotiation to make not only in the terms of Haiti, but in terms of all kinds of cross-cultural interactions. Uh, I, I think I once heard Toni Morrison say that race is a conversation that white people should also be having among themselves. Well, the reason that we don't have it is because it's difficult and we're implicated. And so I think if I begin to write about some of these kinds of questions, I'll probably get some things wrong, but it's probably better to enter the conversation than to not have the conversation at all. And, and interestingly, reading the Haiti sections of Praying Drunk, a lot of, you would think they would, you, you mentioned the, the terrible conditions in, in, in those stories, but also it seems like those stories tend to have the most uh, hope and beauty in them somehow too. Well, maybe that's because um, I just loved that place and I loved those people and I loved their stories and maybe it's easier for me because I don't live there. So the people there didn't inflict anything on me just on each other, the way that goes. Right. Um, I don't think that the stories romanticize the situation there though. Oh, I don't think so at all either. But I do think that if you feel a little bit of love, it's probably coming in part from the, from the writer. Huh? Interesting. And this, the shared history, uh, when I, when I, I talked with Juno Diaz, he, he talked a lot. We were having a discussion in, in a larger sense about doppelgangers and fiction and the usefulness of doppelgangers. And he, he talked about how he felt like it was the Caribbean archipelago was, was really the shadow history of the United States and, and, and they shared so much. Oh, he said that too. He did. And he talked about how it, uh, really, um, you know the parallel was was so one to one in terms of of a lot that was happening, but the um, consciousness of any of that among white Americans is is nearly nil. I mean, I don't think people could name 
who's in power at any given time or any of these points, or even know that Haiti played a particularly big role in how much of the United States is now uh, French. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we got the Louisiana Purchase because the Haitians repelled Napoleon's navy, so he decided to focus on Europe, which also was a disaster. Went and marched on Russia, and that was the end of him. Um, if you want to read about this, you should read a historian named Laurent Dubois. Uh, he's got a couple books. Uh, Avengers of the New World is a good place to start. That's the deep history. And then he's got a, a second book that's about the later things. But you could also read Edvige Dantica. You know, her novels and story collections tend to take on periods of history in chunks. And she tells them not from the point of view of power, but from the point of view of the person down by the river drawing the water. I think, you know, my next book, my novel, The Sexual Lives of Missionaries, is is set entirely, almost entirely in Haiti. Um, a lot of it's told, though, from the point of, from the, from another point of view, the point of view of the the Baptists who come in and, and uh, take over a region, which is a thing that happens and continues now. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, literature ought to take on all of these things. And, and as we read them in aggregate and we read the history, we get a broader sense of all the stuff that's going on. So my contribution to that will be very small. We're talking today with Kyle Miner about his new collection, Praying Drunk from Saraband Books. One of, one of my favorite parts of the book were the two uh, question and answer sections. I've to find a question and answer that you would typically might find in a study guide at the end of a book put together by the, by the publishing house in the middle of a book to be reading stories and nonfictions and, and then come across uh, a series of, of questions and answers, both presumably written by you, um, was really delightful and funny and on a second read also quite deep. And I was curious if those questions were questions you feared and anticipated that were going to come or were a collection of questions that you had been receiving from these pieces and were bringing together in one place to answer them? Yeah, those question and answer sections really are the contextualizing frame um, that everything's dropped into. The thing we were talking about at the beginning of the interview about how the stories are narrated from boring heaven, from back in the time of trouble that turns out to be the greatest time. Um. So they were the last thing that I wrote. And, uh, of course, you know, there's precedent for these. I was thinking especially of this uh, Donald Barthelme story called The Emerald. Have you ever read that story? I haven't. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's, it's set, I think, partly in a mine shaft among these... Uh, I'm not going to try to describe it. I'm going to get it wrong. It has the word hi-ho in it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I... I always felt an allegiance to a kind of fiction that I wasn't writing, a kind of a fabulist side of things, you know. I love writers like Borges and Isaac Besheva Singer, you know, who are sort of sitting on the border between those two worlds. And I think that life is so absurd that you almost have to find some things there that's more true than, than other things. And I was happy to find a form for the book that could accommodate all of that stuff at the same time and have an organic reason for it. One of the one of the things that the question and answer section addresses is the the reader's question around: Did these things really happen? Are these fictions? Are these non-fictions? Which is it tends to be a thing that readers want to know, even when it's explicitly supposedly fiction. Say with Philip Roth, there's always this pushback, which he then incorporates in the fiction itself in a, a never-ending feedback loop about what's true and what's not. Um, and you seem to push back against this question to re reorient it towards what is the best way at getting at truth and at meaning versus whether something happened or didn't happen. Does that, does that seem right? Well, you know, the authority on this question should probably be, uh, Tim O'Brien's, the things they carried, you know, story truth is where it's at. That book says, um, this is the old question, you know. Newspaper journalism pretends to objectivity, but that's not true because if you read the same story in the New York Times and Al Jazeera and a uh, newspaper in Malaysia, you get three different versions of it. Everybody's operating out of an extraordinary subjectivity, and what narrative is is not an arbitrary collection of facts, and there isn't a singular version. We're constructing what all that was every time we set out to construct what all that was. And so 
the, the primary distinction between nonfiction and fiction to me is just the question of how much can go in. Nonfiction less, so it's harder. Hmm. And what were some of the books, if any, while you were writing these stories and, and uh, nonfictions uh, that informed Praying Drunk? Well, I wrote these over 10 years, so there's hundreds oh, of books. A lot of books. You know, I mean, Cormac McCarthy says the dirty secret is that books are made out of books. Well, they're made out of other stuff, too. Um, so I don't know. I had to. There's a website called Goodreads that you can sign up for if you're an author, and then people give you the, your reviews, and if you're smart, you don't read it. But <laughs> I read it, you know, anyway. Sure. Um, but you have to describe your influences on there. And I. The best I could come up with was Alice Monroe and Barry Hanna had a love child. You know, I mean, the formal complexity of of a writer as structurally sophisticated and elegant as Alice Monroe is as important to me as the blow everything up, you know, go for the jugular every time, burn every bridge sensibility of a writer like Barry Hanna. And uh, that's probably as close as I could come to describing what I hope the project is becoming. A, a Barry Monroe po- project? <laughs> they probably would both be horrified by that kind of talk. <laughs> uh, so so um, you studied poetry prior to studying fiction, I believe. Is that correct? I studied them at the same time. You did. And is there a way in which you see um, the concerns of poetry shaping this, this collection? Yeah, there's no, this collection doesn't happen without poetry. Poetry is where I learned all the stuff that I should have learned in my fiction classes. Poetry has this advantage. You can look at these. I mean, all those poems are little machines, you know, and they and they work different ways. And you can see in miniature what you could do in 300 pages on one to three pages of a poem. And also poetry taught me so much about the music language can make. And uh, so, yeah, I think if you wanted to be a fiction writer... One of the best things you could do would be to go study poetry with some really smart people for about three years. And that'd be the way to do it. Yeah. And I keep reading it after. Any non-literary influences come to mind, Kyle? You'd mentioned it's not just books that go well, into books. Well, <laughs> well, you know, you, the best thing you can do is go hang out with people for a long time who are nothing like you. And after a while, things start to relax, and now you have an access to a world that you didn't have access to before. Other stuff too, you know, lately I've been getting really interested in professional wrestling memoirs, which uh, th- by the time you're old enough to write one, the time that you came into is gone mm. and that world is gone and they're full of that world. I mean, I don't care about what's happening in the ring or whatever. It's pretty boring. It's, just, it's, it's reduced. But those figures and the, and the dark, violent world that they moved through is a thing that because of the privilege it requires to make yourself a really good writer, the time and the, and the reading and the access and stuff, you hardly ever see that stuff, you know? But I've been reading these professional wrestling memoirs on the airplane, and they're full of it, of, the, of all that stuff, that world that's gone, you know, in places like Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and Minneapolis, and Memphis, and Charlotte, um... So you just never know, you know. That stuff I, is I had everywhere. no idea there was a subgenre of, of memoirs. Yeah, I just kind of stumbled into it backwards, you know. Huh. Is, there a, is there a touchstone a professional wrestling memoir? Well, there's a few of them. Uh, Lou Thez wrote a great one. It's out of print. Um, he, he, he was a really old man and a referee when I was a kid, but he had been a, a wrestler. His, his time stretched all the way back to the carnival days. And then there's guys who were really intelligent, and actually not bad writers who who have done some of them, like uh, Mick Foley and Chris Jericho. Um, and uh, also there's a there's a couple of podcasts. Uh, Talk is Jericho is one, and Steve Austin Unleashed is the other one because they have access to those old guys. There was a two-part interview with Ric Flair that I heard the other day that was some of the most amazing storytelling I'd ever heard, and it was the version of the story I'd never heard before. Interesting. And that's true for all kinds of things. I mean, if you interview any kind of really old guy, old juke joint singers or gospel quartet singers. They've got the news that nobody's heard. I want to talk to as many of those people as I can before I'm gone. Hmm. And and maybe we could finish the interview with just a a brief uh, talk a little bit about your new project, how it's, how the new novel is an extension of, of the enterprise of praying drunk and how it's a departure. 
Well, I've been working on it for seven years. It's called The Sexual Lives of Missionaries. I'm really hoping I can finish it in time for it to go up for sale uh, this fall. So probably be a couple years before it comes out if I finish it on time. And uh, if you want a preview of it, there's a story in this book called In a Distant Country that's uh, Letters Home from many of the characters that are in The Sexual Lives of Missionaries. Um, but it's a it's a big, sprawling melodrama about uh, Baptist missionaries whose alliance with the Duvalier regime, which is mostly implicit, comes unraveled at the time of the Dechukaj uprising, which means it was an uprooting, a literal uprooting. Not only do you take down the Duvalier, uh, Duvalier's house, but also you rip out the plumbing and maybe you rip up the graves of the relatives and throw them in the street. You know, time of great trouble. Also, revolutions like that tend to be violent and they tend to be ugly, but they also tend to expose the lie that's at the center of the enterprise. And I'm, and I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in the sexual transactions among fundamentalist Christians and the ways in which that they are and aren't talked about and the links that we go to to sort of deal with our appetites at the same time that we're suppressing them. Well, I can't wait for it to come out. It was great having you on Between the Covers today, Kyle. Thank you. We're talking today to author Kyle Miner about his new short story collection, Praying Drunk, from Saraband Books. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. 